Creative Sandbox Way Podcast, Episode 188. Hello, I am Melissa Dinwiddie, and I believe that life is too short not to express the innate creativity inside of you. So I wrote a book called The Creative Sandbox Way, based around 10 guideposts that I developed to get myself out of creative stuck and back to the sense of playful creativity that I naturally had when I was a four-year-old. That book was just the tip of the iceberg. I continue the conversation with this podcast. Let's jump in. Happy New Year! The new year is often when we think about the changes we'd like to make in our lives. And if one of the things you want to change in your life is to make more time to work on the creative pursuits that are important to you, and to be more authentically you, one of the best ways I know to do both of those things is to come to my Creative Sandbox Retreat. Seriously, I'm holding two retreats this year. The winter retreat is coming right up January 30th through February 3rd, and you can still get in. And the late fall, I'm sorry, the late, yeah, the late summer fall (laughs) retreat is in September. Now I'm telling you about it now because the winter retreat is coming right up. Now, Why is the Creative Sandbox Retreat one of the best ways I know to make more time to work on your creative pursuits? Well, that's pretty obvious. You get five days to just focus on your creative thing, completely uninterrupted create time. And it is also one of the best ways I know to become more authentically you. Why? Why is that? Well, it turns out that that is what happens when you combine creativity plus community plus safety. And I have been creating containers for these three ingredients for years. And it's my passion and it's one of my superpowers. But rather than take my word for it, let me share with you what some of the retreat participants have had to say. So Rebecca, who has come to three creative sandbox retreats in a row, and is coming again to the late summer fall retreat this year, said that what stuck with her is, and I quote, the laughter, the support, the kind words, and the newfound passion I found for bringing my project to life after hearing everyone's thoughts and responses. And I will comment on that. The laughter, yeah, we laugh a ton at the retreat. And we have a, a a tradition at the end of every day where in the evening after dinner, we share what we've been working on. And people are so generous and kind and loving about whatever everyone has been creating. And that has given participants the the wherewithal to go on and do things with what they've created. So you can hear that with what Rebecca just shared. 
Amy, who came in 2017 and 2018 and is coming to both 2019 retreats, said that what stuck with her is, quote, the amazing support and encouragement I felt while I was there. And that is, that says it all. It is incredibly supportive and encouraging. Kimberly has come three years in a row, and she brought her sister Kate last year. And she said that since Creative Sandbox Retreat, quote, I'm kinder to myself and less rushed. I'm trying to adopt the thoughtful approach instead of barreling through. Creative Sandbox Retreat changes people. Not only do they get stuff done on creative projects, and we do, we get a ton of stuff done. Another Amy has birthed not one, but two plays at Creative Sandbox Retreats, one of which has been fully produced, staged, produced. I've gotten to see it. It was amazing. And the other has been workshopped. So it's been, parts of it have been performed already. And she's continuing to work on it. And she's going to be working on on it some more at this upcoming winter retreat. So people get a ton of work done. But not only that, but as I said, you will become more authentically you. And I don't know how else to describe it. That is simply what happens in the span of five days. You will (laughs) show up and five days later, you will be more authentically you. And you'll have (laughs) a really good time in the process. Uh, As I said, we laugh a ton. Read more and register now at creativesandboxretreat.com. That's creativesandboxretreat.com. And let's start the year making art together. And now here's my conversation with Rithia Lee, who uses humor to help us heal self-hatred. And I introduce her at the beginning of this conversation. This really was one of well, I enjoy all of the conversations that I have. Um, yeah, th- I would say this is one of my favorites, but they're all they're all favorites. But uh, it, it is really a special conversation with Rithia Lee. Uh, let me know what resonates for you in this one. Enjoy. Rithia Lee is a professional dancer and multidisciplinary artist, giving voice to personal and shared stories of healing. She's an author a singer-songwriter, a painter, a poet, and all-around creative devotee. Her online show, Advice from a Loving Bitch, is her newest passion, teaching people to heal self-hatred through humor and emotional education. Rithia is a proud mom, a teacher of peer-to-peer counseling, a trauma therapist for 24 years, She loves to help people free themselves and become fully expressive. She does this through her own rigorous inner work and through modeling courage. And I am so, so happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Rithia. Thanks, Melissa. It's really cool to hear my own bio that I wrote back to me. (laughs) I don't read them very much. I'm like, Yes, I do that. Yes, I do. Wow, that sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you sound really cool, don't you? Yeah. 
Well, I was introduced to you from by Johanna Walker. Mm-hmm. And she sent me to your website and I watched some of your videos from your online show, Advice from a Loving Bitch. And and I just thought, oh my God, I have to have you on the show because I so resonate with what you're doing with the show and the way that you're doing it through humor and creativity. And one of the videos that I watched was you saying the the message was you were basically embodying the negative voices in your head and each voice you put on like a different costume and it was so hysterical and painful, but, but because it was funny, it would, it landed in such a, I don't know, humor has a way of getting us to be able to, you know, open up to things Hmm. in ways that, you know, we wouldn't be able to without the humor. So I, I was wondering if you could just share what got you to start your online show advice from a loving bitch. How did that get started? Okay. Well, just to outline it, it's a, there's 20 episodes. So I made a whole season. I decided that a season was 20 episodes. (laughs) And I wanted to illustrate and teach about self-hatred and how to transform it. And I had discovered a couple of years before that, you know, I'm a therapist. So I had been working with people really acting out their self-hating voice. I call it the self-hating voice. I sometimes call it the victimizer. And it became a thing. Like people started to really uh, have huge openings, being able to hear it and see it. And I I began to see that self-hatred thrives on being silenced. Like it thrives on being hidden. And so the whole series is about getting it out in the open, looking at it, and even exaggerating it so you can grapple with it and wrestle with it and begin to understand the roots of it. And I had a whole vision for the show. It came to me so clearly. And then when I did my first episode, I had to actually act out all my different voices. It was such like a wild, wild ride. Like my self-hatred blew me away. And it was so funny to me. I thought I was so funny. (laughs) It was so horrifying. And it was completely real. Like I did all these voices of parts of me that don't believe in love, parts of me that think being Jewish is horrible, parts of me that think doing the show in itself is a terrible idea and everyone's going to hate me and everyone's going to judge me and I'm ugly and my money is all going to be taken from I mean, I just really let it rip. And that was my first episode. And I thought this is, this is going to work because I'm completely invested in this. Mm. And I didn't plan the 20 episodes. I actually went one at a time. So I would do one and I would say, okay, what's the next step? And I would sort of feel into what's the next teaching about this work and it it would unfold that way. Wow. Um, I love that. That's, that's similar to how I work nowadays. Mm. (laughs) It's like improvisational. Improv. It's like, uh, it's an intuitive path. Yeah. Creativity is for me. I feel like if I planned it, it wouldn't have been organic somehow. It's so interesting though. You decided in advance that you knew, you knew it was going to be 20 episodes. No. You, oh, you didn't, didn't know. It just said about, about, at about episode 17, I was like, I am dying. I can't keep going. <laughs> I think I have three more in me. What do I need to cover to end the season? You know, I needed a break. Cause I was like, rel- I worked on it really intensely for about a year. 
Wow. And like, you know, I'm a mom of this young child. So I just squeeze it into my Saturdays and, you know, it just started to burn out a bit. And uh, so then I was like, okay, we're about at the end of a season. I decided to call it a season. Wow. So what are some of the subjects that you cover? That's a really good question. Okay. So, so first I do externalizing the self-hating voice and not everybody who watches my show has to do it that way. I also talk about doing it through writing or through speaking out loud. So you don't have to be a performance artist, (laughs) (laughs) therapeutic work. I just model it that way, but it doesn't, you don't have to do it. I don't teach it that way necessarily. And then I talk about when we are criticizing ourselves, who are we actually criticizing? And I talk about the inner child, how we have this sweet, whole, loving, innocent child inside of us. And when we're criticizing ourselves, that's who we're basically annihilating. And I illustrate that through my using my daughter. I have my daughter come on and be really cute and say all these cute things. And then I bring on the self-hating voice, just like, you know, cutting her to shreds. And she wasn't actually in the room. I used it through editing. But so you get to see like, oh, my God, I'm that's who I'm brutalizing. So that's episode two. And then episode three, I brought about about five friends on and they all do their self-hating voice. So you get to see different people doing their self-hating voice out loud. And they're they're people from all different walks of life. And they're so funny and interesting. Uh, And that was one of my most powerful episodes I heard from other people. Like it was so helpful to see other people, not just you doing it and realize, oh, I have one too. And that particular one spoke to me. And then I went out on the streets of my town. I interviewed people about the inner child. Do you have an inner child? What does your inner child look like? How do you know you have one? I was like really surprised to find out that everyone really related to that term inner child. Mm. And then I have an episode where I hold a newborn baby for the whole episode and talk about how we're born good and that in order to heal, we have to get in touch with the parts of us that never change, that are always the same. You know, even though we go through all this human agony, there's some aspect of us that's untouched. Should I keep going? Yeah, (laughs) this is so fantastic. I love it. Okay, cool. Uh, I do an episode where I do like a like a little film about me, about my story of of being a survivor of sexual abuse and discovering dance and how dance and movement really saved my life. That was, I think that is possibly my favorite episode because somehow I just felt like I really expressed something I've never expressed before. Mm. Um, I danced through the whole video and I talk over it and that's one of my episodes. And I, then I did an episode on racism. I brought in a a really wonderful friend of mine who talked all about racism because I felt like we couldn't talk about healing self-hatred without bringing it out to larger context of oppression it's so funny because that was a couple of years ago. Maybe that was a year ago or two. Anyway, I've come so far around the subject of racism. That was sort of the beginning of my awakening around it. And the man, my friend, Kent Alexander, he's on, it's like a longer episode where he talks about healing in a context. Mm. You know, it's not just an individual thing. Yeah. And then episode 19, which is my longest episode, and it's the episode before it ends, is about childhood sexual abuse. And it's almost like someone told me that because there's so much humor and love and like getting to know me in all the episodes before you can tolerate episode 19 Mm -hmm. or get into like the deeper traumatic material. I have these two wonderful guests on and we talk about being survivors and uh, healing in a, in a society where we're not seen or heard and we're silenced. 
And then I end, and then episode 20 is all these people talking about the ones, the episodes that they liked best. And there's like a reprieve where you get like, you get to see little clips from all the episodes. Amazing. Yeah. It was really incredible uh, experience. And that's, that's why I want to talk about it because I want to, I want to keep it alive and I want people to get to it who might not know about it. Yeah. What an incredible experience to, to create a season of 20 shows dealing with that. What I'm really curious about is what that process was like for you. Yeah. Well, first I want to say it's so amazing that we live at a time technologically where I could just be like, I'm going to make a show. Yeah. And I just borrowed these lights and I learned how to use lights and I learned how to use iMovie and I learned how to edit. And I also got an editor. Like I just made this world. I created a world. Uh, I think it's amazing that we can do that now. I mean, I, I, it's mind blowing actually. It is. And Oh, so what was it like making it? Well, I'm sure you've had this experience. You know, when you are teaching something and then as you're teaching it, you're having to learn it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I felt. Like I was battling my self-hatred at this whole other level, trying to demonstrate and illustrate what it was. I would, I would have most intense backlashes after each episode or sometimes during it. Like my self-hatred would just try to kill me while I was making the episode. That's what exactly what I was curious about because my experience of any time, and and I know this is not unique. It's exactly why I wanted to ask you about it. My experience of any time I do something that's a, that's pushing myself outside of my comfort zone. That's doing something new, right? That's that's taking on a big project or whatever. Is you know we we often have this idea that we have to have it all figured out before we jump into that new thing that feels beyond what we're capable of right now. But the reality is that we figure out how to do it by doing it. We well, grow into it by doing it, right? I mean, that's the creative process. I think that that's really what creativity is. Yeah. It's like really stepping off a cliff. That's what it's all about. And then you're like learning as you're falling, falling through the sky. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and of course, your, your self-hatred, or I would call them the gremlin voices, of course, of course, they would be like raging out of control while you're doing this thing because you're stepping outside of your comfort zone. You're falling off that cliff. And that's exactly when those voices are the loudest. Yes. Right. Oh, you totally get it. That is so true. It's like whenever we're taking risks. Yeah. Or like we're, we're stepping outside of who we think we are. Right. Right. So what do you think it was that enabled you to push through and, and keep doing it anyway, despite those voices of self-hatred? Well, I've been doing that all my life. I am such a survivor. Like I've been, I've been taking risks all my life. That's why I'm okay. That's why I've ended up being okay person. Like meaning um, I can still love, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I've just been through so much. Uh, if I had shut down, I just don't know what would have happened to me. I just have been very much a risk taker and, I've been creative since I'm really little and I've been a performer since I'm like 10. I mean, I just been performing all my life and it was something about exposing my most vulnerable self has really worked for me. It has really served me. And there's this episode five. I think it's episode five. 
is when I bring in the loving adult and I talk back to the self-hating voice and we have this long conversation where I say, honey, I'm, I'm retiring you. You're not going to be running my life anymore. And the self-hating voice is like, fuck you. I'm not giving this up. I'm in charge. Why don't you try? You try. You'll never be able to do it. And the self-loving voice is like, I know you're really scared. You're really, really scared. I love you. You know, I'm here for you. I'm not going to let you do it. I'm not going to let you do it. And the self-hating voice keeps fighting me. Until the end, just the self-hating voice just gets really quiet and just looks really sad. And I actually experienced it for real while I was filming it. Like, it really felt like I was retiring a part of me while I was doing it on camera. Wow. And so I'm saying that the self-hatred was more intense during the show, but I would also say the love that I started teaching also got brighter during the making of the show. Wow. Which I guess is why I would say it all led up to episode 19. Like it all led up to me talking about my childhood trauma, right? Cause you, I obviously would have had to become very, I don't know, fortified in order to get to that point. Yeah. You know, it, it, it makes me think of, I have this, this saying that listeners of the podcast hear me say all the time, which I refer to as my golden formula, which is self-awareness plus self-compassion equals the key to everything good. Hmm. And what you just described really feels to me like an encapsulation of that, that you had this amazing self-awareness of needing to bring in that voice of self-love to counterbalance the the self-hating voice. And the voice of self-love is that, that voice of, of self-compassion. It's, and you can't bring that voice of self-love in without the self-awareness that it's needed. Right. So right. the combination of those two things, the self-awareness and the self-compassion, that's the key to everything good. And you had both of those things operating that enabled you to get to that episode 19. Yeah. That enabled you to even start this project to begin with. Yeah, so that's powerful. a really good point. I mean, I guess that's why I call it emotional education. Cause yeah. you know, because in the show I talk about false beliefs you know, uh, which is a big, big part of uh, what, what was the word you use? Self-awareness. It's such a big part of awareness is our belief system. Right. You know, yeah, there's such a huge, you know, even my work as a therapist, there's a lot of education that happens in the rooms with people. It's not just all like feeling and processing. It's a lot of understanding. Yeah. Like a map of like, what does healing look like? How is it a lifestyle? Why would I want to do it? Why do I even want to turn towards my feelings? Why do I want to feel anything? Right. Why do I want to remember what happened to me? I don't want to. Most people are like, why would I do that? <laughs> you know, and that might take a while to actually explain why it would be a good idea. Exactly. So many people that I know are like, no, no, I don't, I don't want to look there. I don't want to go there. I don't want to think about it. Yeah. I just want to shut it away. And whereas my approach has always been one of, I'd rather have this awareness and look into the pain so that I can figure it out and respond to it. I don't know. I've, I, I've always had this, this turn towards the self-awareness. I haven't always had the turn towards self-compassion. That's been, right. <laughs> that's been more right. recent. Yeah. <laughs> that's been figuring out the golden formula. <laughs> that's been more recent. Yeah. But yeah. Interesting. 
Yeah, I've always turned that way too, and I have no idea why. Sometimes I think it's just a soul a soul thing. You know, I just I'm an old soul. Like as soon as I got here, I was trying to you know grow. Yeah, or something. I don't know if "grow" is the right word. Open. Hmm. You know, the thing I think about people who say, "I don't want to go back." What's the point? Is I always want to say, "Well, how's that working for you?" I know because <laughs> it's never working very well. Right. You know? Or even if they think it's working, if you followed them around in their life, you would see, you know, it's not working. It's not. I really. always say because the love and the pain are in the same box. If you don't go to the pain, you're not going to get the love. Like you know, you know, you won't get the joy. They're the same. They're all mushed together. You yeah. Without the other. I know. You know where this has been present for me recently is in conversations with people about losing pets. Oh. I was just having a conversation with somebody who they lost a dog, a, a puppy, and and actually the puppy was the, really the husband's puppy. And it was actually their son had put the puppy in the back of a truck. People don't ever put your dog in the back of a truck. Please, please don't ever put your dog in the back of the truck. They had driven the dog to the park and the dog had jumped out of the truck and been hit by a car and killed. This is why you never put a dog in the back of a truck. Anyway, I'm getting off my soapbox there. (laughs) PSA, Um, PSA, okay. Yeah. So the husband doesn't want to get another dog because of the heartbreak that he just experienced. Right. And although I, I, you know, I'm not going to tell people what to do and I don't, and I certainly understand that heartbreak because I've been there. Yeah. I, I approach things differently because, because I'm with you and I love your metaphor of it's all in the same box. That's how I feel. I, I know I have a, I have an older cat and I know I'm not going to have it forever. Right. And I already know that my heart's going to break and I've had my heart broken. And I know that, that the way to heal for me to heal a broken heart is to let somebody else in. Oh, that's nice. And, And I know that to other people that might sound like replacing. Right. And actually it's not that for me because I still wake up in the middle of the night sometimes in tears, thinking about my cats from childhood. Uh, so it's not replacing. Yeah. Or the cat that I lost when I was, how old was I when I lost my cat as an adult? I was in my 20s. I still cry over those beloved pets, you know? So right. it's, it's not a matter of replacing. It's a matter of opening up my heart to more. Love. Right. So that's funny because have you ever heard this this term like not letting your heart break is the heartbreak? Oh God. I have not heard that, but that that's resonates from, from Gangaji, the spiritual teacher Gangaji that I love. Yeah, she says, not letting your heart break is the broken heart. That's what she says. I really it really gets to me. I think that's the point, I guess some just sort of referring it back to my show is I think people really just don't have the tools. Like yeah. they, don't have the tools, or they don't have the experience of having gone through something with enough support to realize yeah. that it's healing. Like, oh, you can heal through pain. Like pain can actually be healing if you open to it. Like so many people just do not have that experience. Right. You I know, think like as right. a therapist, I, I, I have, you know, I have a private practice and I'm not licensed. So people pay me out of pocket. 
And there are usually people who have already been through all the all the insurance, people who are covered by insurance. <laughs> They've had such terrible experiences. By the time they get to me, they're like, okay, I'll pay you out of pocket. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> because they just had the experience of like so many therapists not uh, meeting them or seeing them or letting them have their feelings or really getting what they've been through or like all, you know, just is not being met experiences. And then he's going to crawl into my office, you know, and sort of the last try. It's, I get a lot of that. You know what? I'm not surprised to hear that, sadly, because the, my very first experience on my own with a therapist was when I was living in New York. And I want to talk to you about dance because I was a dancer. Oh. And I had a terrible eating disorder. And when I kind of hit bottom with my eating disorder, I was living in New York and I was dancing at Juilliard. And I reached out to the school therapist and she did, she was wonderful, but she didn't feel qualified to deal with somebody with an eating disorder. And actually really what I needed was just somebody to listen to me. And unfortunately, you know, if if she had just been willing to talk to me once a week or I don't even know what that would have looked like, but it, I, I think it would have looked very different and dramatically better, but instead she referred me and so uh, she gave me a couple names and I picked the person who lived, who, who worked closest to where I happened to live. And I had one appointment with this woman and it was a disaster. It was uh, like, she didn't, I didn't feel heard. I didn't, yeah. I felt talked down to, I felt like at one point I remember saying something like I wanted, you know, all men to find me attractive or something like that. And, and the way that she asked me why wasn't a why of curiosity. It was a why of judgment and like, why, you know, like, (laughs) like with a sneer and and I felt so judged. And I remember her interrupting me at some point when I was talking about my relationship with my mom and her saying, well, I've heard a lot about your relationship with your mom. I want to hear about your relationship with your father. And I felt like, oh, well now you want to hear about my Electra complex. And, and then she interrupted me in the middle of a sentence and said, Time's up. That'll be $75, which of course is dating me, you know, $75, nothing now. And I think I should see you. I don't remember. It was like three times a week or something like that. Uh, When would you like to see me next? And I was so just flabbergasted. I made an appointment, walked across the park back to my apartment and immediately canceled the appointment. And I thought, if this is therapy, I want nothing to do with it. Oh, Thankfully, did you ever get back? Do you be- I did. A good person. I did. Like I don't know. A year or two later, when I was back in California, living in Berkeley, I found just through my chiropractor, I found an amazing therapist who I ended up seeing for eleven years. Oh, that's so who great. was like my, I don't know, my spiritual teacher. She was incredible. Right. But that one experience just ter- completely turned me off. Yeah, because I thought that's what therapy was. Well, I know. And I, you know, I mean, I've just heard so many bad stories. I mean, but you know, it's like finding a good doctor or finding, you know, like, yeah. it's like anyone can become a therapist. I mean, you know what I mean? It doesn't mean that you'll do your own work. Right. Yeah. No, it doesn't usually it doesn't require that you even, even have to ever have been in therapy. Right. Yeah. Well, and even if you are, you could go to a crappy therapist too. <laughs> yeah. Right. And you know, and all the, all the, profound, interesting, dysfunctional reasons that someone would become a therapist. But, you know, I think it's a dangerous, I think it's a dangerous relationship. 
I mean, it could yeah. be. Yeah. It could be. It's I think that's part of my, like, who I am, Melissa, is, like, I think, like, a big part of who I am as an artist is, like, trying to embody and model healing in just, like, a regular way. Like, what would it look like as just, like, a regular, everyday person to be in a healing process? So it's not necessarily this deep, intense, therapeutic thing, but just like an everyday way that you might work with yourself. I think that's what I'm really trying to help people and, and express. And I, I'd like to be really weird and goofy so people can find a way in, not just think it's so serious and intense, mm, even though that. it is. It is serious and intense. Yeah, yeah. It has to be weird, too. I mean, it has to be, you know, it's um, absurd. Life is utterly absurd. You know, and that that makes me think of like how I approach art, and I I, I think that so much in in our American Western whatever society we sort of hold art up on this pedestal, right? You know, artists, it's this special thing that only special people get to do, right. and it's this you know, I don't know. I, I approach it as no, it's this regular thing. Like everybody gets to, we as humans, that's what we do is create. Yeah. By definition, like we yeah. are creatives. We are yeah. creators by living and breathing on this planet. We are creators and pick up a pen and make a mark. And there you go. It doesn't have yeah. to be this special thing where you have to go get a degree or something or be, you know, have somebody like, I don't know, touch you with a magic wand or something. Yeah. Well, it's very related to self-hatred. Why? Yes. Stop expressing and stop creating at an early age. Right. Look at the schools now. They're like cutting art out. Like art is like not even important anymore. Yeah. Well, even when I was a little kid, it was not considered important. Really? Oh, yeah. A lot of art when I was younger in my, in my school. We did a lot of pottery and art class and I don't know. I just don't think they have it as much now. Oh, it's, it's definitely worse now than it was then. But even then the relationship with art, all kinds of art and creativity was already skewed from how I think it should be. Well, right. And it's not just about art. It's about how kids get hurt. Like all the ways they get hurt affects their creative voice. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's not just about like how they get hurt creatively when they try to draw a picture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like all the way the kids are silenced and punished and shamed and and then how and then they can't they can't find out their unique like way they see things or the way they say things or the way they sing things or the way they touch things, you know, that gets all confused. Yeah. You know, I'm homeschooling my daughter, so she's 6. And this is a secret. Don't tell anyone, but I'm unschooling her. I'm like not supposed to say unschooling because everyone gets so triggered when I say I'm unschooling my kid. People attack me. I had this woman at a picnic go, don't tell people that you unschool and you can stop getting everyone judging you. I'm like, okay, I'll stop telling people. I'll just tell it on a public podcast. But it's because I 
I believe in, in self-directed learning and passion learning, like learning mm-hmm. through life. Mm-hmm. It's so incredible to watch her learn what she wants to learn, dive into things that she wants to dive into and, and not try to force feed her what I think she should learn and what someone else thinks she should learn and what America thinks she should learn. Yeah. What Texas what, thinks she should learn. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's where all the textbooks are written. In Texas? Yeah. Right. I didn't know that, but well, yeah, yeah, it's true. Like what the tests think she should learn, and what you know, all of that, all of that, and then you know, so that's really out of the box. Yeah, I have um, a friend who unschools her kids, so I'm I'm familiar. Actually, a couple I know a couple people who do, so I'm familiar with that. I know a number of people online who unschool their kids. So I'm well, familiar. Well, feel free with to that. connect them to me. I really like. Yeah, really need, I'd be I happy really need to more connection. Yeah, like. Homeschooling is pretty acceptable, I guess, because people assume you're rigorously following the curriculum and then right. you're okay. But right. if you're not, then, you know, yeah, you're unschooling. an irresponsible asshole. Right. It's still considered pretty out there. Yeah. yeah. People don't even really actually ask me. They just judge me. They go, well, I want my kid to be socialized. Well, I can't do that because I work. And that's it. Right. Like, oh, they don't tell me have- about it. What's it like? Like, really? Like, how'd you get there? Like, what's it like for you? People go, oh God, I could never do that. I'd never be home with my kid all day. It sounds horrible. I'm like, okay. But well, they don't great. do that. They they don't do that if you say homeschooling. It's not as much of a trigger. Oh, interesting. Unschooling sounds to people like I am not educating my kid. Right. I'm a permissive parent. My kid watches, does video games all day or something. I don't know what right. people think it means. But it's like as soon as you stay unschooling, it's like it just hits against everything. Patriarchy you know, sexism, all of it just hits all the isms. Yeah. It's interesting. It seems like maybe, maybe unschooling needs, if, if unschooling wants to be, I don't know, not trigger people so much, maybe it just needs a better name. Yeah. I have this friend, she, she unschools and she calls it school of life. Like just like learning through living. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. We, I could do a whole episode on that. Actually. Yeah, really? That would be cool. I wanted to ask you about dance though. Oh yeah, dance. Because yeah. you said something about, you said something about dance as healing, which resonated with me. And also I have a very complicated relationship with dance because I, dance was my first real creative passion in as a teenager, the first creative passion that felt like, well, this is my creative thing after I stopped making art, when I had decided, no, I'm not an artist, I'm not creative. And then I discovered dance and felt like, okay, this is my thing. But dance was also the place where I ended up uh, you know, I ended up developing terrible eating disorders yeah. and dance. I felt very hurt by dance. Yes. So, so movement, hugely healing, but the kind of dance that I ended up in very damaging. Yeah. So I got, you know, it's like this double-edged sword. I got both, both things from it. Yeah. And I'm curious about your relationship with dance and how how you started with dance and what kind of dance that you do and yeah i want to hear more about that 
I just want to say I went to NYU and so and you went to Juilliard, like so I really understand sort of that whole mentality uh of being trained at that level. It's super yeah. intense uh brainwashing and yeah, brainwashing is the right yeah. word for it. Yeah. And wonderful because you're also moving your body all the time. You know, it's so mixed. Yeah. Um, What's neat about me is I remember actually having kind of my first spiritual opening when I was in my room when I was about nine or 10 and I was listening to Billy Joel and I started dancing by like spontaneously. I don't think I had taken dance at that point. And I felt like my heart open. I felt like I started dancing. It was like I was remembering something, you know, I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is, this is the thing. I have to move my body. And I felt hope. I felt it was almost like, you know, a ray of sunshine came in from the sky. It literally felt that way. And I started taking dance classes and became really, really, really obsessed. But I also used to stay home and go out on my porch and like create dances alone by myself to music for hours and hours and hours. Wow. Um, yeah. So it really became my complete outlet. And I had, you know, I had, I had so much abuse in my family. So it's like I sublimated all my attention to that. Like I just, I, you know, I danced. I danced after school every day for hours until it was bedtime. Like I just like it was everything went into the dance classes and training and training and training. And so it was an addiction. Yeah. You know, it was like the thing that kept me from realizing how horrible my life, was. you know, it kept me completely busy. I was busy, 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 busy doing this thing. But like you said, at the same time, I was finding my creative voice. I was getting into my body. I was like, learning all of I had community because I was with all these you know with all these dance groups and like so it wasn't like all it was wonderful and it was you know it's also like an escape I guess that's like many things in life like food food's so wonderful and then it's this place of pain and then like relationships are so wonderful and it's where we act out all of our shit and like (laughs) you know so dance is like that but I remember I started having lots and lots of injuries when I was in college and then I discovered contact improvisation have you ever Mm. done that a little bit, yeah. And so because I was like having all these knee problems, it's a form where you roll around on the ground a lot. And it's also very restful. People kind of lie on each other like puppies and breathe a lot. It's like a big part of it. And like having someone's body weight on me, I found such a relief. I, I, I think of it as like I hit the floor. I, like I was always upright for all those years. And then when I discovered contact, I just hit the floor. I did a lot of rolling around on the ground. <laughs> it was so great. It was so relaxing. But I also had to unlearn, like kind of like unschooling. I had to unlearn a lot of the stuff that I had been taught about dance and what makes you successful and mm-hmm. you know good and uh, you know, all the competitive stuff and all the thin thinness, all the horrible body image stuff. And yeah, so I definitely had to undo while I sort of, you know, it's like shedding. Yeah. So the last piece I want to say, I found out that I did this writing structure where we would move our bodies and then we would write, 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 write. And then it was in a class. And then you take your writing and you can either spontaneously do a monologue from what you wrote, or you could have someone else read your writing while you moved. And it turned out that my pieces were so funny. Like everybody thought my pieces were so funny. And so I started to bring words into my movement. That's how that started. Oh, how cool. Yeah, it was really great. It was really great. And now I that's what I do when I perform. I perform words and movement. I write these long monologues. And so I was at this performance the other day and someone was like, are you an actress? And I was like, 
I guess so. You know, I don't, I wasn't trained that way, but I am talking my face off in front of people. So I guess that's acting. Wow. I love that. I love how the dance and the writing kind of merged and the writing kind of grew out of the dance. That's really cool. That's, that's one of the things I love about creativity is it just, you know, we, we tend to think in these boxes and niches, but it's all this free flowing thing. Yeah. And it all morphs one from the other. I love that. You know, I'm writing a book right now. I'm, I'm pretty much done with it, but I'm writing a book called art makes life worth living. That's the truth. (laughs) And I'm trying to convince people why it's important, you know, why you, you need it. Because otherwise you don't, you're not going to know who you are. You're not going to know how you, your individual, like your particular gifts that you are here to give. Like that's how you're going to figure that out is by stepping out of how you were, you know, all your training. I guess that's what like a theme here is like, is about like sort of stepping out of the boxes of that were, like, did you say boxes too? Like all these yeah. boxes? Yeah. It's like really stepping out of these boxes of how we're taught we're supposed to be. Uh, I can't wait to read your book. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. It's again, I'm writing it to myself. Yeah. Well, I wrote my book to myself, to my younger self. Did you? Yeah. It was, it was basically my gift to the younger me. <laughs> How long ago did you write that? To 2016. Oh. It was, it was my 50th birthday gift to myself. Uh-huh. And to the younger me and to the world. Uh-huh. Neat. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you for writing that book. I it sounds very needed and I'm really looking forward to reading it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, I know you said you brought uh, something cool to share. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Should I say it now? <laughs> yeah. What did you bring? Melissa, have you seen Hannah Gatsby's show called Nanette? No, I don't think I have. Okay, do you know who Hannah Gatsby is? Uh, that sounds really familiar. She is, I think she's English. She's a comedian. And she does this one-woman show called Nanette. It's a comedy. It's supposed to be a comedy show, but it actually veers off into some of the most intense material I've ever seen, which I don't even want to really necessarily say where it goes because it's so surprising. Um. But it starts as just a regular person, like looks like they're going to do an evening of stand up and she's a lesbian and she's talking about what it's like to be a lesbian. And then like the whole show kind of turns on itself uh, where she talks about how hurtful comedy is. That's, oh, one, wow. that's one way it starts because she's like, I've spent all these years making fun of myself. I really can't do it anymore. She just starts to like morph the whole form. And then it goes to this whole place that just is like your my jaw was like, I don't get, I mean, it's, it's hard to make me be really shocked, but I was like, uh. so anyway, I think everybody should see it. Wow. Yeah. If you see it, I want you to tell me what you think. Oh my gosh. So yeah. it's Hannah Gatsby, Nanette. Nanette. And it's and- on Netflix. It's on Netflix. Okay. Yeah. I don't know where else to watch it, but um, oh my gosh. it's gotten a ton of attention because now she's been on all the talk shows. I've been like watching her talk about what it's been like for her. I I might have to sign up for Netflix just to go. 
<laughs> yeah, or just like email your friends. Does anyone have Netflix and like go over there and watch the show? That sounds amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. It's really disturbingly amazing. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. What's your cool thing? Are you supposed to say a cool thing too? Yeah. My something cool is a piece of software called Perfect Photo Suite 9. And there's, it's actually, it's a suite of tools, but the, the, there's actually one tool in there that I use that is a resizing tool that if you get, if you have an image that is not the right pixel dimensions and you can't get the right pixel dimensions, then it actually allows you to resize the image so it won't be all like pixelated. Oh. So say you need a photo, you have a photo that is, I don't know, 300 pixels by 300 pixels, but you really need it to be a thousand pixels by a thousand pixels. Okay. If you would try, if you would just take that 300 pixels by 300 pixels photo and you enlarge it, to a thousand pixels, it's going to be all pixelated. It's going to, Oh, right. You know, Too wide. Gonna, right. It's going to show those, you know, it's going to be like those little blocky pixelated. Right. Look. It's going to look terrible. Right. Right. But what this piece of software does is you just sort of click a button. It has all these default settings that you can tweak, but I've never really tweaked them. You just plug in the size that you're going to enlarge it to. And it takes all of it takes the image and it takes all of those square pixels and it converts them to random shapes so that when it enlarges, it doesn't look pixelated. It oh. doesn't look like a checkerboard. It looks natural. So you can actually enlarge a small image oh. and then it, it, it's not per, I mean, it's not, like you don't, you're not going to be able to use it for like a super high res, you know, print it on like super nice paper and make, and have it look as good as if you really got a high res image to begin with. Uh-huh. But if you're in an emergency situation, yeah, like say a podcast guest sends me a really small headshot like or something like me, well, your photo is fine. But <laughs> if somebody were to say, you know, and I just can't get a high res image from this person or a high yeah. res image, I'm in a desperate situation. Then I can actually use this piece of software to enlarge the image and it, and it will work. So, so it's, is it cost money cool. to have the program? Yeah, it's not free. And I don't right. remember how much it costs. It's like a hundred bucks or something like that. I see. So it's not free. But uh-huh, it's uh-huh. pretty freaking cool. Okay. So you it's can called, say it again. Perfect it's called something? Perfect Photo Suite 9. Perfect now, Photo Suite It might be 10 or 11 by this point because I haven't like checked right. in a while. But that's the one that I have on my computer. Do you, I, use it, do you use it regularly? I don't use it very often. Yeah. But I've used it. I've needed it enough times that I, I just finally broke down and bought it a few years ago. Okay. Got it. So pretty nifty. Yeah. That's my something cool this week. <laughs> <laughs> I like that question. It's a really good question. Yeah. But Rathia, this has been yeah. so fun to talk to you. Where can people find you? Okay. 
So, you know, if you go to YouTube and you put in advice from a loving bitch, all my videos will come up and I have a channel and you could subscribe. But it's really good if you just look that up, that you start at episode one. It's so good to go from the beginning, not the middle. But I also have a website, which is rathea.com, which is R-Y-T-H-E-A. That's my name, dot com. And you could put slash advice and you'd get all my videos in order. Cool. Or just rathea.com and you just get my website that just says everything I do, all these all these different parts of my life. And like me, you are what I would refer to as a passion pluralite who does lots of different pluralite? things. Passion pluralite. Yeah. Otherwise known as a Renaissance soul. Right. Multi-passionate. Yeah. Yes. Gemini. I'm a Gemini. Ah, yep. well, I don't have that excuse. I'm a Scorpio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, but, you're so, so, so easy and fun to talk to. I felt completely relaxed. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Yeah, it's one of my superpowers. <laughs> yeah, it is. I'm so glad. Well, you are easy and fun to talk to. You are a complete and utter delight. And I have so enjoyed having you on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, you too. So, all right. I'll, I'll, I guess I'll hear from you, eh? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you will definitely hear from me and I might have to have you come back sometime. Okay, anytime. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye. That's it. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rathia Lee. Let me know if you resonated and connect with me on LinkedIn or direct message me on Instagram And if you are getting value out of this podcast, share it with a friend. And I would be super appreciative if you would take a moment to hop on over to iTunes, the Apple podcast player, and leave a rating and review. If you don't know how to do that, I have step-by-step instructions over on my website at melissadinwiddie.com slash iTunes dash review. That's melissadinwiddie.com slash iTunes dash review. That's a different URL than before. You can also go to creatorsandboxway.com and there's a link at the top of that page. Um, But I'm having a little bit of website issues, so... (laughs) The direct link is melissadinwitty.com slash iTunes hyphen review. And to spell my last name, D-I-N as in Nancy, W-I-D-D as in David, I-E. That's how you spell it. Anyway, email me to let me know that you left a review and how the podcast has made a difference in your own life If you would like to be considered for the listener spotlight, that's how you apply. And if I pick you, we'll have a really fun, really relaxed conversation, just like I had with Rithia. And you'll be featured on the podcast, just like Rithia was. And I have to tell you, Rithia commented that it was super chill and easy to talk to me. And that's one of my superpowers is that I'm very easy to talk to. So if you've ever wanted to be on a podcast, that is one way that you can get on a podcast very easily. Just leave a review on iTunes and send me an email about how um, this podcast has made a difference in your life. It's really not that hard. Anyway, uh, here is what Tech Coach Tom wrote. He left a uh, review recently. He wrote, inspirational and motivating. Five stars. I've been binge listening 
to Melissa's recent podcasts, and I'm finding them so inspiring. I'm especially appreciating the discussions on the intersection of art and commerce. They have clarified for me how I think about my art. Melissa encourages and motivates her listeners to be more creative. She's also so honest and authentic about how she creates and how hard it often is to keep on creating, and that has really resonated with me. Thank you, Tom, Tech Coach Tom, for leaving a review. I really appreciate it. You are super awesome. So see, it's really not that hard. Just a few sentences makes all the difference. Uh, And the reason that um, I say this every time, but the reason it's so important to leave a review and a rating, hopefully a five-star rating, is because when people are looking for new podcasts to listen to, the podcasts with uh, more good reviews pop up higher in the search results. So thank you so much, Tom. I am ever grateful, truly. So anyway, that's it. Until next time, thanks again for joining me and go get creating. And happy new year. Subscribe at creative sandboxway.com slash podcast.